If you're operating in a purely free market, the presupposition is that you should only be rewarded commensurate to how well you satisfy the wants of others, basically. The better you serve mankind, the richer you become. Hello there from Chicago. How are you all doing? It's been a pretty rough week out there in Bitcoin lands. We are in volatile times. Bitcoin is bouncing around pretty hard. Listen, I know some of you have had a rough week. Just going to say, please do try and stick to solid principles. Do not invest more than you can afford to lose. Please do not trade with leverage. And if you're overextended, please consider your strategy. I've had a lot of DMs of a lot of people who are struggling out there. Listen, Bitcoin is there to take down the central banks, but we have a lot of people against this. A lot of people are going to FUD it and attack it, and that makes for a volatile market, so please be careful out there. Anyway, listen, I love you all, and welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with my buddy, Robert Breedlove, getting back into the sovereign individual stuff that we covered previously. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. And first up today, we have Exodus Wallet, who I am now using for my mobile and desktop wallet for Bitcoin. And someone got in touch with me. They reached out to me and said, listen, Pete, you said you're using Exodus, but what are you using it for? Now, my accountant is always ragging on me. At the end of each month, she used to be saying to me, listen, Pete, I can't deal with these Bitcoin payments. I don't know who they're to, what they're for. And when Exodus Wallet reached out to me, I dug into the software and there was this advanced feature that I can add notes to all the payments to keep a record for, for my accountant. And I loved it. They've absolutely crushed the UX. It's so easy to use. Now, if you want to check it out, please head over to exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Next up, we have my friends over at Casa, the very, very best in Bitcoin security. Now, I know it's been a rough week, but either way, I know some of you are sat on a decent stack of Bitcoin. We're still up massively for the year. And if you've made some good gains and you aren't taking your security seriously, it is time to take a look at Casa. Now, I know what you're thinking. Do I really need this? Isn't this going to be a pain to set up? And maybe some of you are thinking, well, what the hell is a multi-sig wallet anyway? I know, I had all the same questions, but honestly, it could not be easier to set up because a Casa multi-sig wallet allows you to take custody of Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you can distribute into different locations, and it's going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more, you can hit me up on Twitter, you can hit me up with a DM, or reach out to me on email. Happy to answer questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And next up, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they accept Bitcoin. And we've got this promotion coming. Miami is so close. We're going to be giving away a Lambo, but we've also got an extra additional part of this competition, which every Bitcoiner is going to love. I cannot wait to tell you about it. Now, with sportsbet.io, you have every market you could possibly be interested in. They cover football, they got tennis, American sports, motorsports, they even have esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Okay, so on to the show today, and I have the amazing Robert Breedlove back on the show, and we're getting back into the sovereign individual. Now, this book has become a bit of a Bible for Bitcoiners. And I don't think anyone has put as much time into studying it as Mr. Breedlove. So 
we planned to do this multi-parter where we would break down every aspect of the book. And we recorded part one in March. That is episode 320. So if you haven't checked it out, please do go back and check that out because it's a monster and it is a prelude to this episode. But for this episode, I really wanted to get into the idea of understanding how humans organize themselves and how technology has changed the logic of violence and how this, in turn, has shaped the way we organize society. Now, this is an area which I oppose some Bitcoiners with, and despite how shitty I think government is and how I definitely believe in trying to reduce the size and power that they have, I do think they are a natural evolution of societal organization. I am going down the anarchism rabbit hole and I'm currently reading the latest book by Michael Malice, but while I think on paper anarchism is the ultimate freedom, I'm still not convinced that it's possible to achieve or whether it would make a net benefit to society that we live in. Now, listen, I know that's going to trigger some people. Just bear with me. I am going on my own journey. I'm trying to understand this. I am doing my very best to get my head around it and how I think about how society works. But if you do feel the need to write to me and call me a status cuck, well... I so be it. Now, I did have some technical difficulties with this episode. My recording corrupted about halfway through, so we had to rely on the backup, which isn't that great, but luckily, Breedlove is doing most of the talking, so it shouldn't be too bad. Now, if you have any questions or feedback about this show, you can jump into my Telegram group, or you know what you can do. You can reach out to me on my email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com, and I will get back to you. Okay, I'm going to pass over to Breedlove, because I know you love hearing from him. Onto the show. Hope you enjoy it. Love, how are you, man? I'm great, Peter. How are you? I'm good, man. Sorry, it's been a bit of a delay doing this, the back and forth and scheduling. We're both busy, man. Your podcast is uh, snapping on my heels. I had to do some work to try and keep you away from me. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing well, man. Thank you. Yeah, things are good. Just um, trying to, I guess, get my head around all of this sovereignism stuff and get through the whole series and uh yeah like i was just telling you off air it's a lot of really hard material so it's been quite the effort well so i think a good uh, second part of our interviews to cover this is that and it's the area i'm most interested in right now specifically is the if we are in this information age as we discussed in the last episode um there are implications for this. Um, and I'm most interested myself in understanding humans. Like, how did we come to where we are? The different stages of societal development, where we're going, what this might mean. Um, because you often talk about the logic of violence and uh, and it's a very interesting subject to get into. And I'm, I'm, really, under, I'm really interested in how the logic of violence changes in the future uh, and I've talked to you before whether there are net benefits or net negatives uh, in certain scenarios. So I just kind of wanted to do the background with you, uh, starting at the agricultural revolution, what that meant, and just kind of work through those different uh, revolutionary kind of stages from agricultural to industrial, feudal, all the different stages, and just understand how the logic of violence changed with technology. So uh, you ready for this one? Yeah, I think I am. It's a big topic. Right. Yeah. So I think I think an interesting starting point is with the agricultural revolution, which happened post-hunter gatherers. Um, interestingly covered there. I think I also I think I also read some stuff like this in Species. Was it Species? I can't remember. Um, but um 
actually, going before that, you might not know the answer to this. Do we know, uh, prior to the agricultural revolution, do we know much about uh, the relationship between different groups and uh, the issue of violence uh, prior to the agricultural revolution? Uh, as, you know, my reading of the text, and I'm definitely not an expert about, that would be pretty much, I think you're getting into pre-written history at that point because agricultural yeah. revolution was the emergence of writing eventually, mm-hmm. um, which is something we can get into. But my understanding in general there is that we were hunters and gatherers. So we were these roving bands of mostly symmetrical groups, you know, typically less than the Dunbar number, uh, much less typically, which is 150 people. Uh, I think the bands tended to be much smaller. And we just moved from place to place. We ate a wide variety of food whatever we get our hands on, um, you know, tried to constantly move into good weather and didn't have much property or didn't have much wealth because we weren't really creating an economic surplus. We were just living uh, pretty much hand to mouth. Right. So the, the big change uh, that you've talked about in your writing and also within the sovereign individual was the agricultural revolution that changed the logic of violence. Do you want to talk about the kind of the starting point of the agricultural revolution, what happened and why that changed the logic of violence? Yeah, I've, I think we may have touched on this a bit in the last episode, but I'll go through a little bit to review. So it was with the advent of the agricultural age where we decided to stop uh, moving about all the time as hunters and gatherers and settled, settle down in one place to plant crops and produce food. Um, That was the beginning of savings or said another way, an economic surplus. So for the first time in history, we're actually starting to produce much more than we consumed. As a hunter and gatherer, pretty much all your savings or whatever you could carry around, you know, your dagger, your pelts, your, you know, limited amount of food that, that wouldn't spoil in a certain amount of time. But in terms of actually accumulating savings at scale or creating a large economic surplus, this began in the agricultural age. And a consequence of this, a really important consequence, was that we, for the first time, had created something that was worth, you know, it's desirous by humans. Everyone wants food. Um, And the other things related to food, which was the equipment, the buildings, the agricultural improvements, the livestock, all the things that went into to farming and, and agriculture. These were things that people wanted, so therefore they were worth plundering. So if you could go and steal these things from others to eat or you know get a tool that would help you eat, um, that's an activity people were willing to engage in, uh, which also meant that those owners of assets uh, – had to engage in protecting them from plundering. So this was the emergence, not only of assets as we understand it today, like in terms of property, uh, which property went through a number of phases as we'll kind of touch on here today, but it also came with it the emergence of government actually, and government being the preeminent specialist in violence, or you could say the protection producing enterprise that protected local local assets from outside plunderers. Um, and so this is a really distinct fork in human history in that all of a sudden, because we had be- 
began to accumulate savings, this made investments in weaponry and defense more profitable. Whereas in the past, you didn't, there wasn't anything of scale to capture. You just needed weaponry to, to hunt and, and you know, be mobile, pretty much. So this started to change the logic of violence in that the wielder of bigger weapons or the possessor of better defense would have a strategic advantage in terms of building an agricultural-focused society. Um, and then it... You know, these, as governments, governments basically arise in as little enclaves of economic activity. They they can secure a perimeter around an area that can then produce an economic surplus. The government becomes richer as a result. And something else we can go into, maybe a little bit now, actually. The thing about the government specialist in violence is that because they're a monopoly, they're able to charge a price. Their, their customers, they don't care about the sensitivity of their customers to prices. They can charge them whatever they want because their customers need the protection no matter what. Protection is a pretty essential service for conducting agriculture or any kind of business. So these producers of protection, governments, were able to charge monopoly prices and they could really charge whatever price the productive economy would bear up to the point of, you know, creating economic loss for the producers themselves or to the point in which they invited outside competition. If there was some other territorial monopoly that saw, you know, the revenues they were producing, then they would then encroach and um, territorial conflict would ensue. And I describe this in my latest piece as kind of a bootstrapping process, but it's interesting that warfare and violence are just so closely related to our ability to become productive and more technologically sophisticated over time. But all of this has its foundations in that, that singular decision where we figured out that we could, you know, put seeds in the ground and sit in one place and we could therefore create, we're more productive. We could create more units of food energy per unit of human effort. And therefore we could increase population size. But with that, came the trade-off of needing to protect ourselves in larger and more sophisticated ways. And I guess during that evolutionary process, uh, the very early days would have been the seeding of uh, simple crops, uh, eventually creating uh, uh, barriered areas to hold animals and breed animals and eventually build property and property would have arisen around that time. Um, When you define government, or when you discuss government here, can you define what you mean by government? Because the current modern understanding of government is the uh, security of the nation, but but a whole lot more. Yeah, it originally emerges that simply, actually. It is the local protection-producing enterprise. So you've got a farm... (laughs) You've made some stuff. You've got a silo full of grain or livestock or buildings, things that need protecting. Um, Whoever you pay to physically secure your premises, which is not just your lot, it would be a group of lots, you know, so it'd be an entire territory. That specialist in violence is the government. They are preserving your property rights from external threats. That's how government originally emerges. 
do we have any understanding of the structure of this kind of government and the arrangement of these groups of properties? Uh, would they be bordered? Would you know, do we understand how this worked? Um, yeah, a lot. So one of the points that the book goes into is it describes megapolitics. This is one of the core thesis of the book. And we could say megapolitics are the macro-structural patterns that determine how society is shaped over time. So they're, they're kind of these forces that are really outside the control of any individual or particular group, but they, they, are, they exist above politics. Like, I, I opened my piece by saying a, a misperceptive student of history could be forgiven for thinking that political decrees determine the shape of human history. But in fact, it's these megapolitical variables that actually shape things. Um, and there's, there's four key variables that they lay out. Uh, one is topology or topography, sorry. And this would just be the terrain, right? Whether it's a mountainous terrain, whether it's a plain, um, it's typically more easy to exert power over a flatter land area. So if it's a lake bed, a dried lake bed, you know, it's pretty easy to patrol and manage, uh, human affairs in that area because there's just not a lot of obstruction from the terrain itself. Whereas in mountainous regions, it's much harder to govern people that live in the mountains because you just physically can't project power uphill as easily. So topography is a big deal. Uh, climate is another another megapolitical variable. Uh, this has a large influence on clearly where you can live. If it's too cold or too hot or too humid uh, or infested with the wrong um, you know, bugs or anything like that, or if it's too swampy, it determines where humans can live and settle. Uh, it also has, climate also has a big impact on crop yields. So, you know, clearly as people are trying to settle down and engage in agricultural activity, the climate and the fluctuations in the climate determine the best places to do that. And so throughout history, people have moved based on cold fronts, warm fronts, um, things like that. Uh, another really important megapolitical variable is microbiology. This is also one that's influenced by climate. So if it gets too warm in an area, then maybe mosquitoes become uh, warm and humid. Maybe mosquitoes become more of a problem. Maybe those mosquitoes carry malaria. And this can cause, you know, that could just wipe out a population or, or prevent a population from settling in a certain place. Um and you could think about when the European settlers arrived in North America, right? They brought with them uh, a host of diseases. I think the main one was smallpox that just basically cleared the path in front of them. You know, they just landed in North America and then Native Americans caught this foreign microbiological invader and it just started killing them in droves. So it really eased the path for uh, Europeans to conquer the new world just by luck, pretty much. This you know, this mega political variable that no one controlled, they got lucky, cleared the way for their conquest in the new world. So it can be offensive. Microbiology can be offensive, but it can also be defensive where there, there are areas in Africa that for centuries, despite uh, major technological and militaristic advantages, Europeans could not penetrate because they were susceptible to malaria, whereas Africans had developed a resistance. 
it was actually, it, it relates to the shape of their blood cells. So sickle cell syndrome is actually a defensive adaptation to malaria. So, it, you know, that too has a trade-off, right? That's a, a disease that has mm-hmm. its own issues, but it also protected Africans from malaria historically. So you've got topography, climate, microbiology, and then the fourth megapolitical variable is technology. And the big argument in this book is that the more sophisticated a society becomes, the more important technology is as relative to the other megapolitical variables. So, you know, technology lets us live in climates that we otherwise couldn't. Like in the southern United States, there were huge portions of, say, like Mississippi that were not even habitable before the invention of air conditioning. Clearly, technology lets us reshape topography. You know, we build roadways, we blow up mountains, we build islands, we do all kinds of crazy stuff now. And then obviously, technology has a, has a big influence on how we deal with microbiology in terms of vaccines or medical equipment, procedures, et cetera, et cetera. So the thesis there is that, yeah, basically as we become more sophisticated, technology matters a lot more and the first three matter less over time. Um, I think I got away from the original question, but which was? I, I, was, I was interested a little bit more about uh, the structure of governance and who provided it. Was it essentially, because you say government, but it feels more like the kind of private enterprise that uh, anarcho-capitalists think about with regards to providing security mm-hmm. and that it would be a competitive product in that it wouldn't be... Well, was it was it forced on people? Or was it more like uh, some form of mafia racketeering? Or was it more like a private enterprise? It doesn't feel like, whilst you use the term government, it doesn't feel like the government which we have now, which is a monopoly which you can't uh, uh, you can't extradite yourself from. Yeah, it's hard to disentangle the two actually because again, this is before the conception of property even existed. But it really is, you know, we're at the the beginnings of government does have kind of a free market origination and that you needed to protect your stuff. So there there was a valid need for this service. But the thing about protection enterprises is that they are inherently centralizing and they tend to form natural monopolies within the bounds of these megapolitical variables, actually. So you could say within a certain island with a certain climate that has a certain level of technological sophistication, there's very likely to be one government. And the reason for this is very simple because over time, as these different economic enclaves, uh, you know, local specialists in violence rise up. They eventually collide with one another, right? So you probably get two rival, you know, you want to call them thugs or gangsters or specialists in violence, whatever your term is. They're going to have a turf war, effectively. Who gets to service the protection for this little area, right? And the thing about (laughs) protection and violence is that it's inherently centralizing because whoever wins that contest every customer and prospective customer prefers the winner. You never want to have the second best specialist in violence protecting your stuff because he's always subject to the whims of the best, right? So whoever wins this turf war is kind of at the top of the the hierarchy or the top of the game, and they're just naturally preferred by everyone else. So, but in, in terms of is it public or is it private? Again, it's very hard to disentangle because they 
they established themselves as a monopolist. Um, early on, it's, you know, they're usually like a god king or they're a potentate or a local lord. They have a coercive influence over the population that's pretty much working on their behalf. So we could say that the concept of private property rights doesn't even apply to most of their uh, citizens or serfs, depending on uh, what stage of economic development they're in. Um, the private property rights, as we understand them today, really just accrue to the individual that's that's sitting on top, or their their chosen few. You know, their politically favored uh, friends or lords or whatever it may be. So, I think the questions it's maybe just a bit difficult because we say government and we think of government in a certain way. We have we tend to think democratically controlled government where we go and vote and someone represents our interests ostensibly. Mm -hmm. But this is much more of a, you're born into something and there's not a lot of social mobility. You know, you're either a serf, you don't really have private property rights. You can't accumulate independent wealth and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You just work to survive. And a lot, but that it changed over time too. So as, agricultural productivity increased, it tended to move, as we understand them today, private property rights tended to accrue more to people lower down the socioeconomic hierarchy. So um, land rents would, instead of being paid based on income, where the Lord is taking all the risk and he's getting a you know, large percentage of the profits, but he owns the land, he pays to protect it, et cetera, et cetera, they would start to rent it out at a fixed fee. And then they would allow the local uh, agriculturalist to own the land. So they could own the land at a fixed fee. And then they could take, you know, a little more risk in land ownership, but they also keep a larger percentage of the profits. So I think maybe the, the easy or intuitive way to think about this is that productivity is like an energy source of itself. You know, we're, we're, we're harnessing resources. And the more productively we do that, the more people it can provide for. So as we as productivity increases, you tend to increase the overall level of freedom and property rights within the population. So and a lot of this waxed and waned over time. If there was a crop failure, you know, if there's a climate uh, like a climate bad climate issue for a number of years, and crops failed, then the civilization would actually revert back to something more top down um, versus this kind of free market property right structure we understand today. It does make me, so I'm going to jump around a bit here though, it does make me question some of the, the theory behind uh, anarcho-capitalism and the pri uh, provision of private um, security. Because, I mean, even in a, you know, if we were to jump forward however many decades that we would need to jump forward for this, but if we to imagine a scenario whereby uh, we've had the breakdown of uh, government uh, we move to private protection because whilst whilst we can hide our Bitcoin and we can protect our Bitcoin, we will still hold other physical properties and there are other crimes which are enacted on person to person. Mm -hmm. So we still will need some form of security. And if ultimately security becomes more centralized, um, then I, I it was like what I messaged you on Telegram. I wonder if we end up, because of the way we are as humans, the way we organize, we end up with the same structure anyway. Yeah, I, you know, we're very focused on Bitcoin in this move 
towards sovereignism or the sovereign individual, which it is very important to have this mm-hmm. monetary property right that can't be violated by inflation, can't easily be confiscated. Um, and if you properly custody it, can't really be confiscated at all. But there are there is the outstanding question of what happens to all these other property rights and how do we secure them? And I think the way I see it playing out is that by virtue of the nation state being starved of revenues at scale, where it can no longer just inflate the money supply to produce revenues, it forces it to become a smaller and more accountable organization. So it would still serve a purpose, as government originally did, in securing physical local assets. But this would be done at just a much smaller scale overall. And then another element in that equation is that today armaments and defenses um, are, you know, of the industrial age are very large and expensive. You and I can't go out and buy a tank or a fighter jet or whatever, what have you. But the digital age is changing that to some extent. Like there's a reintroduction of symmetry uh, in the domain of, of weapons and defenses. Whereas, sure, we can't go out and build a $20 million F-22 Raptor, but there are drones that cost a few thousand dollars that can destroy an F-22 Raptor. You can't go out and, you know, buy, say, 100 assault weapons or whatever, but there's 3D printers now that allow you to produce your own weapons at scale. So it's just pulling down these barriers, and these barriers create asymmetries in populations, kind of between haves and have-nots, or those that can produce weapons and those that have weapons and those that don't. Uh, the digital age is is dismantling that in a lot of ways. So I would expect government to, you know, in this movement to the digital age, just become more like it was originally, which was a small localized protection service. Um, I would further even expect, and I think you're already seeing this, that especially people, wealthier people are going to have more private security forces. They're just going to have private mm-hmm. security details you know, especially if things get dodgier as a result of all this inflation and taxation and social unrest, um, and that the gap between rich and poor keeps growing as a result, which it has been, you know, since the onset of COVID, that it just makes sense that the people with the means would opt to secure themselves with private means against uh, against others. So, yeah, I guess the the general perception here is just a breaking down of these barriers that that restore a symmetry of violence sort of like what we had in the hunter and gatherer age but but different in that we also have this large division of labor and specialization so we have all this wealth and property but the actual um access to weaponry will look like will look much more like something in the hunter gatherer society where everyone had pretty much the same thing so during the agricultural revolution with the um, advent of uh, protection, I guess the I guess protection itself became competitive. Yeah, of course. I mean, and you talk about the advancement of technology, but I guess the development of weaponry and uh, perhaps the training of those providing protection was something that became important. Uh, whilst the farmers would learn to sow, sow the land and uh, in, increase the uh, 
uh, turn, turn over their crops, uh, those providing protection had to not only protect the land, but protect their own self-interest. Yeah, that's right. Um, but originally, and this was, we're, we're pre-gunpowder revolution at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the knight on horseback was kind of a law in and unto himself. You know, we, went, we talked about a few of these innovations before, but like the stirrup gave the knight on horseback the ability to strike at something with a lance without knocking him off the horse. So this small little innovation allowed him to become much more uh, sustainable as an offensive unit. And, you know, you could have dozens of peasants versus a single knight, and they wouldn't stand a chance. He was basically invincible compared to a peasant with pitchforks. They also had, you know, war horses, which became a really big deal. And I think Sovereign Individual goes into this a bit, and the example they give is, imagine if all of a sudden in the world some weapon were invented that cost $100,000, and that if you could afford that weapon you'd be okay. You could, you, it was a weapon, I guess it's a, a weapon and a defense in a way because you can use it to defend yourself from other war horses. If you could afford the war horse, you'd be okay to protect and defend yourself. But if you couldn't afford the war horse, all of a sudden you're at the whim of everyone else that can. So a very quickly bifurcated society. If you just imagine today this weapon that cost $100,000, those that could afford it would have undue power over those that could not. So that was another change, a technological change in the logic of violence that, that really changed things. Next up, I talked to Breedlove more about the sovereign individual. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. And first up, we're going to be kicking off with Gemini, my very new exchange sponsor, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But I'm still only buying with these dips. I'm buying more. I'm a hodler. I'm not selling. I ain't selling shit right now. And I have been using the Gemini app for buying these dips, but I also have a DCA setup where I'm doing twice monthly buys of Bitcoin automatically through the app. They've killed it. The app is one of the easiest I've ever used for buying Bitcoin, so I love their work. As ever, I do want to give a massive thanks and a massive shout out to Cameron and Tyler for supporting the show. I'm hoping to hang out with them in Miami, catch up with them, talk a little bit of Bitcoin, but I appreciate the fact that they are open to any ideas I have in Bitcoin that I want to discuss with them. I love working with the Gemini team, but if you want to check them out, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. Next up, we have its BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services, offering a number of products for Bitcoiners. Now, with a BlockFi interest account, you can earn yield on your Bitcoin. I've been a customer for about two years now, and I love letting my Bitcoin work for me. Also, with a Bitcoin-backed loan, you can borrow against your Bitcoin without selling. And also, coming up soon, imminently, is the BlockFi credit card, which I know Zach Prince has been teasing on Twitter. They're going to be offering 1.5% rewards back on all card purchases. You're going to be able to stack sats as you spend money which is pretty badass. Now, if you want to find out more, I do recommend you do your own research, then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. And this week, we're going to finish up with Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin, and I've been a Ledger customer since early 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces directly with your device. And if you are an Android phone user, you can also connect that to your Nano S 
to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. What, what were the other changes to society and structure and people and education that was that happened alongside the agricultural revolution? Yeah, the the really important one was writing, frankly. Um, once you had savings and you had you had a need to protect those savings, you now had a need to account for the savings themselves, um, not only to conduct trade, but also to collect taxes. And this actually, you know, if we look at some of the earliest uh, Mesopotamian text and even the Rosetta Stone itself, which um, was an old tablet used to translate uh, ancient Egyptian and I think between Sumerian, ancient Egyptian, and one other language that helped us crack those languages, it was all tax records. So it created this need for accountancy, essentially. And the accountancy was a precursor to written language. And written language is the basis of modern civilization. Clearly, it's it's how we think and talk. It's how we pass down our learnings from generation to generation. It's how we codify these things into institutional forms. Um, and it led to the, the dominance of the various institutions we've had across history. You know, the church, which for a long time controlled the production and distribution of information in the scriptoria. Uh, this was pre-printing press, so they actually had monks that would sit in a chamber and copy books. This, get, this made the church the monopoly on knowledge that had its own consequences. And yeah, clearly that, you know, written language got us into the modern age. Uh, once the printing press was invented and it cracked that monopoly, led us into the Enlightenment, led us into the Industrial Age. And even today, you know, this, the, the digital age is really premised on language at its base. It's just code. So all of that originated from the agricultural age. And I, the, the one other one that was important was that we started, it lowered our time preference. So we started thinking longer term because we had to plant crops and figure out what to do, right? To optimize yield, when to harvest, where to store them, how to deal with them. Uh, you had to learn all these techniques for husbandry and, and, and agriculture in, in general to then pass those things on. So we started developing almanacs. Uh, we started paying much closer attention to astronomy. So it actually um, measuring seasons, when to plant, when to grow, you know, this, we get terms like harvest moon from that. Um, so it, it made us, we're, we're kind of developing this abstractive capacity for written language while at the same time, we're being encouraged to think longer term about crop yields and agriculture in, in general. So it made us a much more thoughtful species um, it made us a lot smarter in the long run. How under threat were landlords to revolts and revolutions from those they provided protection for? Um, I, I'd say it, it varied a lot. You know, if and a lot of it was contingent again on on productivity. So if productivity was low, then basically the peasants were desperate to survive. So all of their actions were just thinking about engaging in the labor necessary to produce crops, satisfy their feudal master so that they can eat and be sheltered. Um, 
But when productivity increase, that tend to stimulate trade more. And one of the consequences of this was that, you know, we lacked good transport and communication systems. So, and when you're trading agricultural goods, especially, there's, they're very prone to risk of theft and spoilage. So the answer to this was the application of, of bureaucratic systems where they'd actually install officials, gatekeepers, if you will, to check, you know, how much agriculture left this point, check it at point B, and then check it again at point C, passing paper back and forth, making sure that everything is, you know, all the boxes are checked and nothing's getting skimmed off the top. So this decreased the risk of theft and spoilage because you had some oversight, but it increased the cost of overhead. And the other risk that it introduced was that these actual officials become a corrupt themselves. They always skim a little bit off the top, doctor the records, collude with one another, and that they would ultimately become threats to the centralized power, the, the feudal lord or whoever was controlling, um, whoever was benefiting from the trade. So, yeah, that, that was an, uh, another interesting consequence. So, it, it, again, it moved in tandem with productivity. So, as productivity tended to increase, I would say the threat of social revolt um, increased alongside. And do we know at what point money came into the equation? Because my assumption is at the starting point of the agricultural revolution, money wasn't a thing. It, you know, early farmland. Uh, and I'm assuming... Um, most of the trade was through barter, but eventually we have money uh, and that, that kind of changes things. But was there tax before money? Yeah, I mean, this is a very hotly debated topic. Like when is money actually money? Um, my general point on this would be if we define money as the most marketable good and we understand that goods don't have to be physical, like a service is a non-physical good. The oldest form of money was in all likelihood just the IOU, right? It's, hey, I killed a woolly mammoth. I can't eat the whole thing. You can eat some of my woolly mammoth now with the understanding that I can eat some of your woolly mammoth next time, right? That's the original store of value is your reputation um, or uh, could be, you know, something more still asynchronous, but maybe of a different product is, hey, I'm going to go out and pick apples and then I know you're going to go catch fish. Uh, I'll give you a bushel of apples today and you give me the next three days of a catch. So it was these locally traded favors, I would say is really the originally form of the original form of money. But then when you get into agricultural age, uh, another form of money that was very important was salt actually, because salt was a preservative for a lot of foods. Um, and that's, you've probably heard before that it's the root word of things like salary. And we get all these sayings like worth is weight in salt and salt of the earth. Like all of this was rooted in uh, really the monetization of salt and all of it, it's, it's utility value was centered on its relationship to, to food and agriculture. So money my argument is that money emerges anytime there's trade even. So I would say even in the hunter-gatherer society, technically we had money, right? We were trading favors within your little 150-man band. 
Um, but trade becomes much more sophisticated and much higher volume when we get into the agricultural age. And that's what tends to promote a more sophisticated tool as money, uh, ultimately leading to the monetary metals. Do we know what, when the monetary metals came in? Uh, I believe gold's been used for about as long as it's been the agricultural age, so five to 6,000 years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can we talk about the transition into f- uh, feudalism? What, what was the most significant changes? And what, was, what was driving it? Yeah, so there's uh, the book goes in, in depth on this, but there was essentially, there were a number of reasons why crop yields were collapsing, so productivity was declining. And at the same time, the knights uh, technology for knights was uh, increasing, right? They're getting the stirrup, the lance, the war horse, all these things. And it created this bifurcation in society where the, the local political body could no longer manage knights, essentially. They, were, they became sovereigns in and unto themselves. And so were they the uh, were they the first sovereign individuals? <laughs> yeah, you could say that. Um, well, I mean, if you want to go all the way back, hunter, when you're a hunter and gatherer, yeah, you were sovereign individual, right? Um, okay, so the first reemergence of a sovereign individual. Yeah, well, and there's this is a, a debated topic as well too, because Mises would say in Human Action that no one ever actually had individual sovereignty because they're always subject to the guy with the bigger club kind of thing that we needed some established institution to honor, you know, life, liberty, and property or to preserve natural law. So I guess that's a bit of a murky area to explore, but yeah, I forgot the original question again. <laughs> so, so it was just trying to understand this transition into feudalism and the most significant uh, right. changes that we saw in society. You talked about the knights. Yeah, so productivity is declining. So this, you know, again, if productivity is an energy source, there's less to go around, right? So uh, we could say that scarcity is increasing. And when scarcity is increasing, divisiveness and conflict tends to increase alongside. People are, are fighting over a shrinking pie. And um, knighthood, the technology associated with knighthood was, was on the rise. And this, it, things got pretty bleak, actually, you know? Basically, knights were just running amok. They, there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of plundering. Um, the governance structures had basically lost control because they couldn't do anything to corral these knights. So the church actually stepped in and implemented feudalism. Um, and they, they just made negotiations where you could give up, say, if you owned property that you could no longer protect. If you were one of those few people that couldn't afford the equivalent of the $100,000 war horse, you could then, um, the church basically brokered deals where you could sell that property to the knight effectively with the guarantee or the promise that you and all your descendants could work the land to survive. So you could become a, a serf essentially to this knight or feudal lord. Um, and that the church... Uh, sort of created stability there, and it offered a lot of advantages too. Um, the book goes into a number of the, the contributions the church made to productivity. Um, and one of these, there's one quote in there I really liked. It said, quote, the social function of a religion is independent 
of its truth or falsity. So it's making the point that the church as an institution, it helped create rules in a time of, of anarchy, where there was, again, contracting productivity, but increasing returns to violence, we could say, in this period of, of knighthood. And it also gave people a way to overcome incentive traps and behavioral dilemmas. So, uh, and this is what, what else was interesting about this time is a lot of people thought this was end times because <laughs> the climate was bad. There was anarchy in the land. So people started giving their land to the church thinking that, you know, it was all over. So the church ended up becoming this kind of ballast to in the dark ages and, and uh, contributed to productivity in a number of ways. It also, as we touched on earlier, it was the main source in this time as, as civilization was regressing in preserving and transmitting the technical knowledge of the time. So it was, again, preserving knowledge in books, passing them from generation to generation. It was extending the very minimal education of the time. There was a base level education that was being provided to, to serfs and agriculturalists. Um, it was also... It did some. It engaged in some public works and even entrepreneurial experimentation. So there was demand for this certain kind of sacramental wine in Northern Europe, and this caused monks to experiment with hardier varieties of grapes. So they were actually filling this. You know, the church preserved this little enclave where there could be some entrepreneurial experimentation that contributed to to better wines. Um, that was just one example. They also ground grain into flour, things like that. Um, and then, you know, essentially the church was filling a lot of functions that the government provides today as in they were, um, in a time of, of anarchy, they were creating public works and public projects and jobs for people, sources of income. And the book has this great quote on this, um, insofar as the church essentially helping at a time where the, the market is unraveling entirely, the church becomes this little bastion of, of supporting and insulating a more complex market process that, that helps us bootstrap back towards, towards the modern day. And the quote is that uh, in the same way that military spending of the nation state during the Cold War unintentionally helped incubate the internet, so the building of medieval cathedrals led to spinoffs of other kinds, including the incubation of commerce. So, yeah, it's funny. It's, it's war and conflict and the attempts to preserve peace just driving innovation and creating unintended um, productivity in the process. Well, it's quite a defined class structure at the time as well. I was just going to bring something up I was reading in reference to feudalism was that um, French historian Marc Bloch contends that peasants were an integral part of the feudal relationship. And so there was like a requirement for whilst the peasants needed the protections of the vessels, the the Without the peasants, they wouldn't have the productivity to provide what the higher classes needed as well. So it was quite a uh, symbiotic relationship with all all the aspects of the different classes. Mm. Yeah, I you know, in the piece, the sovereignism part three that I wrote, I talk about this uh, this bootstrapping process that I've alluded to, 
And I got this from an excellent piece by Frederick C. Lane, who's a big influencer of the authors of the book, The Sovereign Individual. And he's got a piece, it's available online on JSTOR. It's called The Economic Consequences of Organized Violence. And he goes through, it's almost like society has this natural process where we start out in pure anarchy and plunder, and then a few people figure out, once the kernel of the process is figuring out that we can sacrifice today to produce more tomorrow, right? Just kind of the kernel of economic truth is delayed gratification. Once someone figures that out, we naturally converge on agriculture as a chief source of that, where we can plant seeds today and, and till, till the ground and, and make uh, much more energy, essentially, increase our productivity a lot through, through food. And so that creates this pocket of economic energy that's coming out of the ground. We're harvesting sunlight more efficiently. We're supporting larger populations. With that comes more profitable investments in weaponry and defense, the emergence of government. And then in stage two, once those specialists in violence or government, they've, they've adequately defended the territory, their costs collapse. Because again, it's an inherently centralizing monopoly. So once the producer on uh, producer protection has cleared all the internal threats, they're basically just taxing and securing the perimeter, right? But they're a monopolist, so there's not their cost of production collapse, but they have no there's no uh, competitive pressure for them to reduce their prices. So they keep their prices high; their margins just go through the roof. And then eventually, the, this stimulates a lot more wealth production, but a lot of that economic surplus has been captured by the monopolists and violence. And it also stimulates a lot of interregional trade because they're producing a lot more of the surplus. Other groups are producing similar surpluses, but they're not the same thing, right? You might have a different type of spice or different type of livestock. So these economic enclaves start to trade with one another. And it's at this point that merchants, the actual merchants that are trading, figure out... Uh, what Frederick C. Lane calls uh, protection rents. But you could also say that these are just like jurisdictional arbitrage. So they figure out ways or, to not pay the tax man, basically. They'll either self-insure, they'll, they'll, they'll do smuggling runs, they'll, they'll have their own defense, they'll hire their own armies, their own people or whatever. And at some point, these protection rents actually start to capture more of the economic surplus than the monopoly on violence itself. So now all of a sudden merchants are capturing more of the economic surplus. And because they have such a high propensity to trade and reinvest, that's what they do for a living, that they start to allocate a lot of that back into, they reinvest a lot of the profits versus consuming a lot of the profits. And then this leads to the next stage, that reinvestment. We start to get more, we get longer production processes, more sophisticated tools. And then another stage is reached where technology starts to yield the highest proportion of economic surplus. Um, and then that leads us to kind of modern capitalism as we understand it, where we just have this... Uh, oh, the other important piece is that governments, because you've created peace internally, you've pushed the specialists in violence to the edges. So they're actually out there trying to conquer new lands and whatnot. So internally politicians become more of the, the, the people pulling the levers. It's, it's more about cunning and intelligence and charisma, all the things we associate with politics. 
And that causes, um, you know, there's this, the distribution of spoils becomes less uh, authoritarian, let's say, and more about we, we, we develop this governance through voice that we kind of have today. We're actually selecting officials that we think represent the interest of the whole. So it, it decentralizes sovereignty and morality in many ways. And then in the final stage of economic development is, is capitalism proper, where we actually have a you know, democratic governance model, um, at least a representative democratic governance model, and a socioeconomic structure premised on, on free trade. So feudalism was essentially pre-capitalism. Yeah, it's one of those stages in that Lanian sequence of economic development. And I guess that would be around stage two, where the local monopolist on violence is just capturing most of the surplus. But there becomes a point where the, the surplus gets so high and trade becomes um, at, to such a high magnitude that the merchants begin capturing more of the surplus. So it's all about we're creating surplus in the land. And it's like whose hands are capturing that surplus energy? You know, is it the violence specialist? Is it the political class? Is it the merchants? Um, and then eventually once we've, it's sort of radiated out far enough, it becomes technology that's creating most of the surplus. And technology tends to be much more evenly distributed because it's just, it's just an idea at the end of the day. Do we know about where the emergence of kings within the structure that happened. And, and how was that? Was that just the ultimate centralization and a, a first elected king? It's nothing I've ever read about. Uh, from my reading of the book here, I think those were just the earliest when sovereignty was super centralized and someone was dominant in an area. They were just the God. Originally, they were God kings. You think of like the ancient pharaohs of Egypt. Mm -hmm. They were, they literally considered themselves to be gods or instantiations of God. So the ancient societies worshipped these principles that were embodied or encoded in the, the mythology of the religion. And then the king was that guy. He was the living incarnation of that principle. But they actually, uh, yeah, it's interesting. They actually held him, I'm thinking of like ancient Egypt here, where I think the king was supposed to represent Marduk, which was their God back then. And every year they held him to account. It was like, how good had he done embodying the principles of Marduk from this ancient mythology? So I think I would say, and then, you know, the more hereditary form of kingship that we think about in, in Western civilization, I think just branched off of that over time. Well, there are people who believe, I've seen the debate on Twitter, that uh, a monarchy is a, is a better form of governance than democracy. Yeah, there's a great book called Democracy, the God that Failed. Yeah. Um, and it makes the point that, which this, uh, the sovereign individual makes this point as well, that in democracy, it's essentially governed by its employees and they don't really have an interest in decreasing uh, the cost of that structure. So, and uh, the point here being that it's, it's tyranny of the majority, right? It's whoever... Whatever the voice of the majority says, the minority is forced to comply with. Whereas if you look at an anarchic structure or an anarcho-capitalistic structure, 
that would be governed by the force of optionality or exit. And when you can exit, there tends to be much more efficient uh, and smaller governance models because it can it beca- can become more particularized to suit the individual wants and desires of the of the people expressing their voice. But in the, the large nation state model, it's like we don't have that. We have red versus blue wrestling for majority control and whoever you know gets on top gets to basically impose their beliefs or wants or political views on the minority as a result. And it's this constant wrestling back and forth. Whereas, you know, if you think of more like a free market enterprise, businesses are always free to fork. You're always free to get a few of your employees together and quit and start your own company kind of thing. So this idea that society should be able to fork to best suit, to most particularly suit the needs and wants of individuals, um, I think makes a lot of sense. And, and that points, I think the sovereign individual points that direction. It says that's, that's what the next logical consequence of government is, is that it will no longer be this imposed institution, it will become something much more like a free market enterprise that's subject to this forking and customization process that we see in the free market. Yeah, I, I've not read the book, um, but I've had a recommended to me before. It's Plato's book, Republic, um, where he discusses the issues with democracy as well. Um, mm-hmm. Do we... Do we do we understand or do we know where the migration from kings to a structured democratic government happened and why? Was well, that pre-industrial just, or post-industrial? You know, I don't know off the top of my head where it falls. And in, in, I, I would say it's come up with the American Revolution, to the best of my knowledge, is like the idea, the best implementation of representative democracy started in the United States, right. I believe. Could when be wrong kick, on that. When you kicked us <laughs> out. So around 1776. <laughs> Which was, again, that was a mega political transition. Mm-hmm. Right? We were on a new topography. Uh, we had new technologies. The information and transport systems of the United Kingdom was not, or I guess Great Britain was just unable to govern uh, this new economic enclave. So we forked, right? We forked off of uh, the colonial superpower. And there's uh, the book I mentioned earlier is Democracy, the God that Failed. I think it's by, uh, by Hop. And it just goes through how this model of governance doesn't create the best outcomes. Um, it actually induces short-termism, which I think is pretty evident in the the electoral process today where everyone's just trying to pretty much vying for a re-election. There's a quote that every public election is an advanced auction on stolen goods. (laughs) Someone's just trying to get into office, trying to write some rules that they can probably then rotate out of office and go and consult for a private enterprise exploiting loopholes in those very rules. Um, so it becomes Which this we game. See again and again. We're seeing that in the UK right now with uh, previous Prime Minister David Cameron. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes a game 
premised on political positioning and and you know more like who you know better than what you can do right whereas if you're if you're operating in a purely free market the presupposition is that you should only be rewarded commensurate to how well you satisfy the wants of others basically the how the better you serve mankind the richer you become but in these overly complexified legal environments that specifically that involve a legal monopoly on money central bank it's all about getting close to that spigot because that spigot can be used to steal from everyone else. It's like you don't need to do any hard work or figure anything out. You can just get this perpetual something for nothing until you know the monetary system collapses or there's a social revolt or whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, it's, it's clearly not a sustainable or useful structure for human beings. So we should talk about the gunpowder revolution before we talk about the industrial revolution. Then obviously it precedes it. That had a significant change to the logic of violence. Yeah. So the authors went into this in further detail in one of their other books. Uh, the, the title of the book escapes me at the moment. But essentially, we were talking about that knight earlier that could just run the countryside and do whatever he wanted. And anyone that could not afford the $100,000 war horse was just at his control. Um, the gunpowder revolution changed that. All of a sudden, um, I, which again, what we talked about earlier is technology reducing the cost of armament, right? Giving us today the power to run that drone against a $20 million fighter jet. This would be some, a similar dynamic back then where a peasant could now go buy a hunting rifle for not $100,000, maybe it was, I don't know, $500 at the time, or the equivalent, they were typically trading in livestock. And he could now defend himself from that night on horseback from 100 yards away, one peasant, right? Whereas before the rifle, you could have dozens of peasants with their pitchforks, um, just totally vulnerable and weak uh, against a knight. So just a simple technological innovation, in this case, gunpowder, totally changed the the one-sidedness of violence, if you will, and flipped it the other direction. And all of a sudden, the knight and the code of, of behavior, which was chivalry at the time, uh, crumbled, right? It just crumbled as a, as a dominant martial form in the world. And, uh, and with the collapse of, of chivalry um, came the, you know, these other moralities that came up after that. So that would have seen a significant change to civilization, the organization of people. Yeah, of course. I mean, it allowed people to defend themselves at a distance much more easily. It changed the nature of warfare forever. If you've seen a movie like, actually, if you think about the Revolutionary War, right? Or the American Revolutionary War between the United States and Britain. Mm -hmm. How did we fight? You know, we... Originally, there's this movie, The Patriot, with uh, Mel Gibson. Yeah, you ever seen know, that one? Yeah, yeah. You know, the Brits are lining up. They all point their guns. And then on command, they all fire at the same time. And then a certain, uh, certain number of people in front get shot dead. And then the next row steps up, and they repeat the process. I mean, we literally went from knights on horseback running the countryside to that, right? We're much larger scale organized violence. 
And that too crumbled where that was the, the honorable form of warfare for a while, but eventually United States, or at the time, I guess the, uh, the revolutionaries adopted a much more guerrilla style warfare tactics. And they, that was only possible due to firearms. You know, we could go and hide in the bushes and ambush people from a distance and um, do all these militaristic feats that weren't possible with something like uh, being a knight on horseback. So, what else? What else came at these times? I mean, we had the rise of the printing press. That must have significantly changed things too. Yeah, the printing press, as we touched on earlier. You know, I guess the best way to understand it is that wealth is knowledge. Mm -hmm. Knowledge is what, like, if you've got the knowledge to create and do something and the ability and means to acquire it, that, that your civilization becomes a reflection of how much knowledge you have. And the church was essentially a bottleneck for the distribution of knowledge. So there was a large cost related to the processing, which would be the actual scriptoria producing the books and the distribution of knowledge at the time because books were a luxury. You know, they, they cost a tremendous amount of money at a time where there wasn't much wealth being produced. And the invention of the printing press just collapsed the cost curve for the production and distribution of knowledge. So all of a sudden, uh, ideas started to move across the world much more quickly. Uh, with that came an increase in the quality and variety of thinking and thinkers. Uh, thinkers that were ultimately heretical to the institution of the church itself. Um, Was this because, we, sorry, it's totally to interrupt. Is this because knowledge then became competitive because ideas, it was easier to spread ideas? Yeah, I think so. If you just consider that when we lower the intervention in a marketplace and there's a more free flow of ideas, whether these are, you could think of a company as an idea, right? The more competitiveness we have in a marketplace, the more wealth we will generate because we will, competition eliminates error and bias and all of these things that don't work. And we settle more quickly on the ideas that do work, the ideas that increase our productivity the most. So the more competition you have among ideas, the more the more specialized knowledge becomes, the more wealthier we become as a result. Uh, so by breaking this bottleneck, this church monopoly on knowledge, we just amplified the Darwinism of ideas in the world. And as a result, you know, we error corrected. We, for the longest, thought the earth was the center of the universe and that the church was the dominant institution of the earth. And because the earth was the center of this finite Aristotelian universe that the earth was the center. Atoms were the smallest thing. There was nothing below them. The whole universe was a macrocosmic atom. There was nothing beyond this sheet of stars. The church was the dominant institution of the center of the universe, which was earth. So the church ran the world. All of a sudden, we have the printing press and things like, and I wrote about this in the number zero on Bitcoin, but the zero-based numeral system started to spread really quickly. It was a very useful numeral system for trade. and But the problem is that it implied infinity. So the whole universal model that the church was using to proselytize people into its order was broken. 
And this, you know, it ultimately led to, I guess, 95, is it 95 theses, Martin Luther? Or he pinned them on the door? Is it? I don't know. I can look it up. Well, he just, the guy that basically said the church is a bunch of bullshit, you know, and he started the Reformation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> forgive my my crude recollection of history here, but it, we got smarter, right? We got smarter and realized we didn't need this particular institution and its dogma to organize ourselves. And eventually uh, it was, it fell from grace basically as the dominant institution in the world. And that freed up the space for this post-enlightenment institution that dominates the world today, which we call the nation state. Um, But the scale of the nation state is achieved by its apparatus of theft, which is the central bank. So the, to tie it back into what the printing press did, it's when we decrease the distribution cost of information, we reduce information asymmetries. So all of a sudden, uh, the best, again, the best ideas spread much more quickly. Society tends to become much more fair. We start to reflect this, this decrease in asymmetry or increase in symmetry, if you will, uh, much more closely. And institutions that were formally thought to be formally necessary or dominant for even hundreds of years, as in the case of the church, suddenly collapse. And the church responded to this, by the way. They tried to attack and sequester the printing press. Uh, You know, we had the Spanish Inquisitions and all these other things. They were trying to tighten their grip on this technology. But because the printing press is just an idea, right? It's just a set of blueprints, uh, which, which like Bitcoin, was a composite of other ideas. It was four or five inventions that one guy put together into one invention called the printing press, sort of like Satoshi did with proof of work and one-way hashes and public-private key cryptography, et cetera, et cetera. Every time they tried to, to sequester it, it would actually highlight the value proposition of that idea, and it would drive its proliferation through its very its own technology, right? It was like people would print more books about how to print the print to create the printing press and it would spread more quickly. So the church's attempts to put the genie back in the bottle or the toothpaste back in the tube actually accelerated its own demise. So I think there's some analogy there for central bank. It's a real parallel. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to put the, this, this real race we're seeing, especially in the U S where we're trying to get the central bank digital currency rolled out more quickly. Um, I think everything they do to try to fight Bitcoin is just going to highlight its value proposition and accelerate its proliferation. Uh, we had Tom Brady turn on his laser eyes today. Dude. You know, this thing is like, it's, a, it's, it's out there. <laughs> well, it isn't just central banks, but it's, uh, it's retail banks as well. Uh, we have mm-hmm. a big problem in the UK now with banks closing down Bitcoin as accounts. Mm-hmm. And that's not stopping people by Bitcoin. That's leading to people realizing that they need Bitcoin more. I mean, ever since I had my accounts right. closed down by Lloyd's, I probably get an email or a DM once, like once a day for some, someone saying, what was your solution? You know, and I found a bank that would allow me to buy Bitcoin, which is Revolut. And that's whoever it mentioned to everyone. People are just moving their accounts to other people, but it, it doesn't stop you it's 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 like uh it's like when you're a kid don't be your hand in the fire i'm gonna put my hand in the fire like 
But you're told you can't have something. You want to know why. I mean, putting your hand in fire is right. particularly good for you. you. You learn as a painful lesson. But uh, other things, such as like Bitcoin, you kind of realize you need it more. So that's an interesting parallel there with the, the church. I didn't realize it was a rise of the printing press also that caused the fall of the church. Yeah, man. It's all... It's. I love the the reframing of people don't have ideas, ideas have people. It's like we're we're just a bunch of ideas. I mean, even DNA itself is just an organic informational idea. We're just it's propagating through us. Um, and there is this universal Darwinism where the best ideas win. So in this age of hyperfluid ideas where they exchange more quickly than ever, you know, specifically through memes. Like we just talked about the laser eyes. Mm -hmm. That thing is just running rampant on the internet. That was a joke two months ago. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, what has it been? Six weeks, maybe? I turned my laser, laser eyes on maybe six weeks ago. I thought it was silly. I was like, who came up with this? Kind of silly, kind of fun. Let me turn it on. Now it's fucking Tom Brady. I know, dude. I've turned mine off, by the way. Turn them off? Yeah, I turned them off because I was like, I, I had this moment, I was having a discussion recently where someone actually criticized me uh, and they said, uh, you're too much of a cheerleader, you're not asking. They said, listen to your show because you ask the tough questions or you, you try and find holes in narratives. I was like, shit, if I have laser eyes, I'm just a cheerleader, which I, which I am often because I'm a, I am a Bitcoiner. But at the same time, I was like, no, I need to not have the laser eyes. I need to question why we have laser eyes. Question... Because sometimes one of the things I worry is there is there is I feel like there are certain coercive narratives which if you step outside of uh, you can come under a lot of pressure. Fine, which is good. I you know I agree there's some nonsense arguments out there, but at the same time I, I do think it's good to pod and probe, probe and question things like I do with say anarcho-capitalism. So I was like I'm taking off my laser eyes because I think it's more important I step back and question things. But I then cheer, cheered on Tom Brady this morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, the meme, man, the meme is super powerful. And we, t we think it's a joke. And, you know, between you and I, it's like, okay, we get Bitcoin. We don't need the laser eyes to reinforce that belief. But I think it's hard to understate how significant it is when Tom Brady turns on his laser eyes and you have umpteen million people that are into Tom Brady that don't know shit about Bitcoin that are like, what's up with these eyes? What and then the they fuck? do a simple Google search and they figure it out and it sparks their curiosity about Bitcoin. And maybe 1% of those people start to go down the rabbit hole. But, you know, that's just one guy, you know, one instance. And it's the, the power of mimetic data compression is not something that should be underestimated. And, uh, you know, no judgment on you, turn them off, turn them on. But the, on balance, the whole force is really something to be reckoned with. No, I agree. And, and, you know, it's different people in different sectors. It isn't just Tom Brady. You know, we have Paris Hilton with laser eyes. Yeah, She has a whole right. entirely different audience. And uh, I absolutely 100% support her becoming a Bitcoiner. I think it's an amazing thing as, as well as I Tom think Brady. she's actually a bigger deal. I think she's probably 20 million Twitter followers to Tom's too. But for yeah. me, I was just... I don't know, I guess I'm just a typical American, more impressed with Tom Brady. <laughs> well, I just think what it is, is it feels like we are at that tipping point now where we're crossing over into pop culture, sports, 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, actually, and politics. We even have politicians with laser eyes. That's right. Which is yeah. kind of insane. Um, I feel like we've reached a good point to, to close out this one because if we go into the uh, life and death of the nation state, that's going to be probably another hour, hour and a half. So I think we should pause this one here and we should do the, the life and death of the nation state next time. I think that's a great idea. Uh, and maybe this one quote just to seal it yeah, and lead it to next time is from Robert, Robert de Balzac. He says, quote, most important of all success in war depends on having enough money to provide whatever the enterprise needs, unquote. And that's why the nation state is going to fall because Bitcoin bankrupts the model. Yeah. Interesting. Right. Well, we will do that probably sometime in June then. Um, but I appreciate you doing this. Always love talking to you. <laughs> I have to go away and think about some of it. You take me up uh, another <laughs> level. Uh, also, just appreciate all the, the other public interviews you've been doing at the moment. That four-hour uh, interview with Friedman was excellent. But I would say to people, if they're like, holy shit, that four hours, what do I do? I think if you're nervous about that, at least do the first three hours because the first three hours is, <laughs> is you in your zone and then the last hour is you, you and him like discussing uh, outside topics such as, uh, as um, how you read books. But I think if you can afford four hours to the whole thing, uh, I've done it twice now. So I've actually committed eight hours to that interview. <laughs> and I'll probably do it again oh, soon. I'm uh, so, honored, man. Thank you. Yeah, no. feedback's been great on that one. And I really appreciate you having me. Um, yeah, no, this no. is, again... This is a tough topic. This whole thing is a dense, tough topic. I encourage people to read the book. I've been writing a series on it that's also hard to read, but um, just it's worth thinking about. It's very important, even though it's a hard topic. How much total time do you think you've dedicated to that book and your work related to that book? It must be considerable. I really don't know, but I'm only on part three of 12, so I got a lot of time to go. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Well, listen, we, we all accelerate our learning through you doing this, which is uh, so I'm, I'm hugely grateful. And uh, congratulations on the success with your podcast and everything you're doing, man. And I will see you in Miami in about three and a half weeks, three weeks ish. Looking forward to it. Always good to talk to you, Peter. Thank you. All right, man. Take care. Okay, come on. How good is Breedlove? I think we're blessed to have him in Bitcoin. He has become somebody I love talking to, but he's become a friend, and I'm really, really proud to be able to say that. Now, it's been great to work through this book with him. I've read the book, but there are a lot of deep topics which are quite abstract ideas, and being able to sit down with him and go through them, it really helps me get my head around it. He is pretty unreal in breaking down everything in a concise and easy way to understand. So do make sure you go and check out his podcast and his series Sovereignism that he's been writing. Also, go and check out the interview he did with Lex Friedman. Honestly, it's fucking magical. It's like four hours of an insane conversation. Now, this mini-series is one of my favorites at the moment, and we will get back with the next one sometime in June. And also, if you haven't checked out the first one, as I said in the intro, that's episode 320. Do go and check that out as well. Anyway, thanks for listening. If you've got any feedback, you've got any questions, you can jump into my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, if you want to support the show, 
Come on, I say this every week. If you've been listening every week, if you listen to loads of my shows and you've never gone over to Apple Podcasts and left a review, it takes about two minutes. I really appreciate it and it helps with the rankings. Outside of that, have a great week. I'm really looking forward to Miami. It's really soon. I managed to get into the US. They allowed me in, so I cannot wait to get to Miami. Hang out with some of you, grab a beer and talk about Bitcoin. Have a great rest of your week and I'll see you all on Wednesday. 